When the PGA Championship kicks off this week, we'll get reminded, again, how every corner of the professional golf world keeps getting smarter. When a player stands over a 175-yard shot in the fairway, we're going to know how likely he is to hit the green, and how close, on average, he'll end up to the hole. Once he's on the green, we'll know how likely a player is to make that putt. Old stats like total putts or number of fairways hit are a thing of the past. Fans want to know what they're watching and how they can predict what's going to happen next. The two unlikely faces are at the forefront of golf's newer, smarter wave. Two brothers from Ottawa, Matt and Will Corshane, who started a brand new company, Data Golf, in their mid-20s. So how can these guys change the way we watch, think about, and yes, make bets on the pro golf world? I'm Dylan DeChair, and this is The Drop Zone. All right, I'm here with Matt and Will Corshane, the two brains behind Data Golf. And uh, guys, I guess actually I'll just turn it over to you. Could you tell me in like a minute, we'll start with you, Matt. What is the origin story of Data Golf? How did this all get started? Uh, so I guess it started back in the summer of 2016. And he has, not only is Henrik Stenson the Open champion, that's the lowest score anyone has ever made in the Open. You know, I was in grad school um, trying to grind out a PhD in economics. Will was working as a data, data analyst uh, just in the private sector. And yeah, Data Golf started out as just a blog. We were just a WordPress blog. We were just... Every couple of weeks, just when we had a spare moment, we were cranking out blog posts uh, about kind of interesting questions in golf. And like the thing we were trying to do that was different is we were trying to answer them with with data or uh, with data and some statistical methods. And then since then, like data golf has just, it's been a slow burn, I would say. It's slowly progressed to what it is today. And now uh, if you go to our site, now we have everything from uh, predictive models, or a predictive model that generates stuff pre-tournament, predictive model uh, live during the tournament, betting tools, a bunch of interactive data pages where you can go and uh, pull up a player and look at their strokes gained over the last 15 years. Um, and yeah, it's totally transformed from a simple blog to now uh, a website that Will and I develop on our own. And um, yeah, it's been, yeah, been quite we, the journey for the four years. When we first started, neither of us knew anything about web development or even like our modeling skills. Like we are both fresh out of economics and we were just basically doing it to practice to get like a real job. Yeah, and so tell me about your golf background. Are you guys both avid golfers, and have you always been? Uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty rocky backgrounds. So yeah, we both grew up playing golf every day, basically. Um, and we were both good. I'd say we were both tournament scratches. Like, I'll give ourselves a pat on the back. Like, we could they'd go to a tournament, and we'd win, like, some local junior events. We both might have won the Order of Merit in, around the Ottawa area. So, like, we were pretty good. But then, yeah, like we both just kind of fell off around age 16 for whatever reason. Um, for me, it was kind of just like a slow burn. I just all of a sudden wasn't hitting it that well. And then it kind of got in my head and then mental issues became physical probably. Yeah. And Will, what was the original motivation behind data golf beyond just, you know, wanting to make something fun? What did you see in the golf space where there seemed like there was a gap? Basically, what we did is we wrote a couple of blogs and then just basic misconceptions, I guess, that we thought might be um, not true in the data. So stuff like how do players perform under pressure or um, what was some other stuff we did early on, Matt? I can't yeah, like, like how golf, I guess the initial pro approach we were kind of taking was, yeah, sort of trying to 
sort of myth busting, I guess. Yeah, one of them was just how do players uh, play following really good rounds. Um, like the basic flaw there and the normal thinking is just like, obviously after you shoot 62, you're going to shoot higher than that the next day. But if you actually look at a player's, uh, just because the 62 is such an outlier, but if you actually just look at your expectation for the golfer based off of all their historical data, following great rounds, they actually play a bit better than uh, following like pretty good rounds, just because they're obviously playing very well. Yeah. So Brooks Kepka is on to something. Kepka just shot 62 and he was asked after his second round where he shot uh, maybe 71. He said, is it, why is it so hard to follow up a great round? He said, oh, it's not. I just didn't putt well. So maybe he's on to the same thing you guys are. All right. So I like this myth busting. What other myths were you able to bust early on? I think there's a misconception out there that there's like a massive pool of very, very good golfers who could just get on the PGA tour if things went their way or like a little, if they play well here in some way or, but in reality, there's actually very large differences between tours. I think that gets kind of blurred just because, um, I don't know, you just hear the stories like every week there's a Monday qualifier who gets through and the winning score, you need to shoot like 64 or something to qualify. So Mm -hmm. I guess I think those courses are obviously really easy that they're playing or I mean, yeah, it is hard to win a Monday qualifier, even if the field isn't that strong. Yeah. If you're a good golfer and you're like, you're just going to, you're going to move up the ranks. You don't need that much luck. Obviously there are some cases where you play well in the U S open qualifier, then you get in the major, but in general, it's, it's there's there are large differences even at the top of the yeah i think people see you know the screenshots and stuff of mini tour events where guys are shooting you know 64 66 66 and finishing like t12 and think oh there is this infinite pool of guys that could all win on the pga tour but that's not necessarily the case and even like you said you played on the canadian tour for a bit so you must have seen it firsthand like some guys are just operating on a different level like yeah, they, they, like 72 can be shot in very different ways. It can be a very, very relaxing 72 or that, yeah, you're getting up and down on every hole. So, yeah, I mean, like, there are just massive differences, I think, between players. Like, I think when we actually analyze, because this is probably one of the biggest, I was actually trying to make, when I was making a few notes for this, one of the, the main misconception I wrote down was just still differences between tours. Like when we actually looked at like the mini tours, or not the mini tours, the development tours, like some Canadian tour, Latino America, like it is super, super rare for a golfer to average uh, um, like the, the PGA Tour quality performance because we, we're able to measure performances across tours. And so for a player to average um, uh, the type of performance that's like an average PGA Tour quality, that's happened like two or three times in the last five years on one of those tours. So it is, yeah, it is, like Will said, it is, there's not that many guys that aren't on the PGA Tour that are playing like average PGA Tour players. All right, so I'm wondering, who are your readers? Who is coming to your website? And uh, has that changed over time? Have you gotten more insight into who these people are over time? Yeah, I think so. A big chunk of our readership is definitely people who bet on sports and play fantasy. Um, and when we started out, I guess this relates back to your motivation question. Um, like definitely when we started the site, and even in the first year and a, a bit, we were trying to build a site that was for the general golf fan. We knew nothing about gambling. We'd never played fantasy um, still have never played fantasy actually. Uh, but so we were not building the site for betters, but just as people reached out to us, you realize that the people that were like really interested in, engage, in engaging in our blog posts, because some of them are obviously not the most pleasant reads. You need to sometimes dig in and think through some stuff. Um, oftentimes it was betters. 
And then especially when we started doing the predictive stuff, then that really pulled in uh, sports betters and fantasy uh, types. Um, but, then, but then also, like, I think, uh, like, on our website, we have a lot of interactive stuff and, like, interactive web pages where you can just fiddle around with historical data. And so I think the media uh, has slowly begun to use our stuff more and more, and we've seen it referenced here and there, which has been great. Um, and then also just, I think, casual golf fans do, like, a lot of our stuff. Like, Will and I try and – like we're always trying to sort of thread the needle between having stuff that appeals to people who do understand statistics and want to really dig in, but then also at the same time making it accessible to like the average fan. And that's what we kind of try and do with a lot of the data visualization stuff we do. So when did you guys start building models? I mean, was that a, a basic thing behind the original site and blog posts or was that more recent? Because now you guys have, I mean, the site is filled with different models, comparative models, live predictive models, player rankings based on models. How does that even begin and what are some of the factors involved? Yeah, I guess we started like maybe like three years ago, right, Matt? Something like somewhere yeah. around there. Yeah, it just naturally progressed to that. We were like getting more and more into the data and then we were kind of discovering gambling and the, the community for that. And then, yeah, we just decided to make a predictive model. And then, yeah, it started out really basic, just like not like using everyone's strokes gained over the past however long and weighting it in a certain way that was like predictably optimal mm -hmm. um but then what kind of happened was we realized that there were these like intermediate inputs or inter intermediate outputs from the model that we could start building web pages around which was really helpful so for example like there's a course fit tool which shows you which players we would expect to play above or below baseline at mm -hmm. different courses so so the, 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 the model and the website kind of grew together naturally in that sense, because as we work more on the model, um, it just naturally created more interesting web pages for us. Yeah. All right. Let's get into that course fit page, actually, because that's a, a fascinating example of a way that you guys have dived into something that people talk about all the time. You know, when when players go to uh, Augusta, I would say is the, the prime example, but maybe even a different let's pick a different example. Let's say every year when players go play the Honda Classic, I think there's a real inclination for you know announcers to just look at the results page from the year before and say, oh, you know, so-and-so, Keith Mitchell played well there. He really plays well on this course. Yes! And Keith Mitchell has done it! With a birdie at 18, not official, but he's at 9. How much does something like that actually matter to the next year at that same golf course? And, and how do you guys go about building that? So I would say first is like what you described, I guess, is more course history. So I guess we'll distinguish between course history and course fit. Yeah, yeah. good point. They're, they go together. But uh, so course history is just yeah how a golfer has played in the past at a course. And the only thing I, I would say that we do that's somewhat unique is uh, we look at how a player performs. So we would look at how Keith Mitchell played last year. Not, not that he finished tied fifth. We would look how he performed relative to where, how he performed at all other courses. Just because the obvious example is Tiger. Tiger, if you're just looking at absolute performance, Tiger is going to have good course history everywhere because he is just really good. And now for, for course fit, it's, it's a little more interesting. I think it's more important than course history just due to the sample size stuff. With course fit, we're looking at things like, is this a course where players who drive the ball further than average tend to perform better than they do elsewhere. So a good example was Beth Page Black is like the most extreme course uh, 
on the PGA Tour, even though it's not played regularly, but um, where in terms of favoring distance. So if a, if a guy who bombs it, when he goes, when he goes and plays Bethlehem's Black, we're going to uh, bump up his prediction because bombers tend to do well there. And we do that for driving accuracy and then a few other attributes. The, the cool thing about course fit is that a player doesn't have to have played the course for us to make adjustments because we know even if a guy has never gone to Bethpage, if, if he bombs it, we're going to give him uh, a bump in our prediction for that week. So in general, we kind of, over the years, actually, we've changed our stance a lot. Like we were pretty hard headed starting out when we, we initially thought, no, course history doesn't matter at all. Course fit. We're not going to incorporate that at all. And that was, I don't know why we were, we were just kind of combative back in our earlier days for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Now we do think there's, yeah, there's meaningful things that go into the model that, uh, factor in course fit and course history and I think it's great too because as well said it's provided like cool web pages for us to make each week that update each week that people use a lot people love the course fit stuff when people talk about it they just kind of mention in passing like okay yeah Keith Mitchell has good course history here and it's like in terms of making a prediction like okay like that doesn't actually tell me that much like how much should I adjust him are we talking like two strokes per round like three like 0.1 strokes so we do try and we always give an actual like number adjustment which uh, like, it, like for me at the time it was just super helpful and, and made it a lot more interesting than just saying yeah Keith Mitchell has like three top tens out of, out of his last like 10 starts here um, all right so how about what time of the week do you guys get the most action because obviously people are going to be looking to dive into you know pre-tournament research they're going to be investing on players um for me, I, I'm obsessed with checking your guys' cut line stats. On Friday, you have a, a really interesting model that kind of shifts in predicting where the cut line is going to end up by the end of the day based on how scoring goes. What do people uh, use data golf for during a tournament week? Yeah, so I guess it starts out with like our most loyal users. We'll use it for the pre-tournament stuff. The main draw of our website for the general person is actually probably the cut line projection. So. Yeah, I'm like halfway through Friday's round. Like last at Memorial when Tiger was sitting right on the cut line. Yeah! Sneaks it in there and that right there with that putt gets him inside the cut line. Like everyone was piling to the to that page just to see where we thought the cut line was going to move to, um, which is good and bad. Like over the years, like we've missed the cut line pretty pretty bad so it, it's actually quite hard to get because the course conditions can change quite quickly so as soon as we're not modeling the course properly then yeah we can get some pretty bad projections up there but it's gotten a lot better over time is that something where you're changing the model in real time like manually based on how the course is shifting or that's all now baked in yeah so nothing's manual okay the odd time there's something once or twice it's been manual but <laughs> but in general no in general it's it's all automated and like yeah, it was, it's gotten a lot better because it was, yeah, there was a time where we were doing things differently and people would hate on us on Twitter all the time for it. But now it's, it's pretty good. But actually last week we kind of missed it because the, the wind just picked, like if there's just something unusual that happens and we were predicting the afternoon wave to be harder and it ends up being easier, like you can miss it pretty badly. And like someone who's watching can always improve upon our cut line predictions for sure, I think, because like we, we give a good baseline because it's, it's pretty, yeah, it's hard to look at a leaderboard sometimes with all the moving parts and figure out where the cut's going to fall. But someone can definitely look at it and say, okay, this is too high for minus three because it's, it's playing easy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that moment when you decided you, you could try to go do this full time. Uh, did that come from 
you know, thinking that you had a base of potential subscribers that, that you'd be able to really turn this into a revenue source or what was the calculation there? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we actually ever wrote down some numbers on like what we mentally, we must, we obviously had some expectations for subscriber counts and how that could translate into revenue. I think Will and I both have always just had like a sincere belief that the content we have is really, really good. And that, yeah, eventually people would come around and people would be willing to pay for it. Um, I think, and, and we were both at a, and we still are at a time in our life where we were willing to have an uncertain, uh, more uncertainty in our, in our income stream. And I guess when we initially did it, we said, I think, yeah, I think we said, we're going to do this for the summer for four months, see how it goes. Um, cause we could both handle four months of whatever, maybe not making very much money. And then it went pretty well. And then we kind of just went from there. Um, but we have been saying for a while, I think that, yeah, we want to work on this full time. I think there's a lot we could do if we were uh, completely committed. So it was sort of a long time coming, I think, starting that subscription product. Yeah. All right. It's very cool. Let's make some people smarter. What, what, and we've danced around this. What does the golf public get the most wrong when they think about watch golf and, and start to, you know, think about placing some bets? Matt, let's start with you. I think the biggest thing is just people underestimating how random golf is. So that leads them to value. And by random, I just mean like unpredictable. It's just mm. somehow in golf, people just, you just show up one day and one day Rory's, well, Rory's kind of an outlier because he always hits it great, but some guy will come out one day and hit the ball like the number one player in the world. And the next day he won't. And people, I think, see that. And it leads them to value things like short-term form a lot. It leads them to value course history a lot because you see a guy come out and play just extremely well at a course that he's never played before. And you mm -hmm. assume it's meaning it's meaningful. So I think that's the, the biggest thing, like the, the biggest differences between our model, what our model is telling people to bet on and what they would want to bet on is we're often going back to the well on guys who have missed recent cuts. Um, I guess the other thing that that sort of reminds me of is uh, people, people care about finished position. We don't care about finished position. We care about uh, stroke. We just care about strokes gained. And so if you miss a cut by one stroke versus missing a cut by eight shots, obviously that matters. And mo most people would obviously understand that. Um, but winning as well, I think winning is something that people value a ton. Whereas I think often winning is kind of like a lot of it's just luck, like not everything, but it's obviously not everything you have to play well, but sometimes another player just plays really well. Like Phil would have won any other British open uh, other than the 2016 British open against Stenson. I mean, so it's gotta be a balance then between those two ideas of what we were talking about before, right? Because on the one hand, Will, you're saying that there's not this infinite pool of guys that can get it done on the PGA tour. You know, there's not like probably a thousand guys that are likely to win on the PGA tour, but there's also more than just the pool of guys that, you know, finished in the top eight the week before. Right. So how do you reconcile those two ideas? Like where do you, where is the value? Is there any value? No, I think, I think there is value currently. There are thousands of guys who can go out and play like a PGA tour player for a week. That is true. Mm -hmm. But Matt, the thing Matt, is, there's a, lot, there's a lot of unpredictability on one day, but over the yeah. course of a season, it's actually not that unpredictable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Oh. Like in the long term guys do separate themselves and uh, there are big differences across tours and, and players. And 
I think the thing with winning, I think it's not, it's more just if you have two players who have similar strokes gained averages for the last two years, but one of them's won four times uh, and one of them hasn't won at all. Like we're definitely going to be betting on the guy who hasn't won at all, just because he's going to be, the, the guy who has won is going to be, the, the market is going to overvalue him well, relative to what we're saying is correct. But yeah, we're not always, there are anomalies. Like Brooks Kepka is a guy who we said before, we wrote previews for the majors last year and every one of them we were saying, yeah, Kepka's way overvalued. And obviously we know how that turned out. Oh. It's a Kepka coronation. Yeah, and it's also kind of interesting what's going on with Bryson right now because I mean, he's playing kind of bad this week, but I guess he's playing incredibly well, but he's also clearly hitting it like he's he's probably overperforming those last few weeks even if he has improved it's very unlikely that he's actually become this like indestructible force i mean it's, it's, it is possible but we can only hope that it's not true just for the win Great job, Bob. Well done. so the reborn bryson uh how do you guys handle tiger woods because he's a guy that never plays there's a certain amount of variability in his health these days. Um, there's obviously a ton of attention on him and people betting either on him or against him. So how do you guys, you know, figure out what to do with Tiger Woods? Well, Vaughn, neither of us thought Tiger Woods would contend at the Valspar tournament, and both of us were wrong. How does this second-place finish change your expectations for Tiger's season to come? I guess it ups my expectations. Back in 2020 and end of 2019, or 2019, he was playing – a decent amount so it was kind of okay with him but yeah when he came back from his layoff it was super interesting because yeah here's a guy who was like incredibly good better than anybody we've seen like two three years ago and for many years um so we were actually i remember we were yeah we were really low on him when he came back because we were treating him pretty normal i remember he was contending i remember something kind of blew up on twitter he was contending at the valspar 2018 valspar mm -hmm. uh we had him we had paul casey favored over tiger and they were at similar scores and people were <laughs> freaking out about it because Casey obviously is known as to some degree as someone who can't close out tournaments, I think. Uh, so I remember we were lower on him back then. Uh, yeah. Tiger's tough. I think Tiger's a player you have to like manually, like that's the other more general point. I think humans can improve upon what our model is fitting out. Like I think Tiger's a guy where a common sense adjustment would have helped back then for sure. Like just, just reading up on what Tiger's been doing, watching him maybe even uh, for people who have followed Tiger forever, like us, like, I think you can, you can pick up a lot watching him play, I think. So yeah, we never did anything special with Tiger. And now with him, it's probably a weakness now with our model, like Tiger not having played very much, like we won't do anything too special with him. I don't think you kind of get, if you don't play a lot in our model, you sort of get regressed back to the average player a bit, not a lot, but just in general, people tend to regress to the mean. So that's sort of how Tiger's getting treated now. But at the same time, like if you start making adjustments for someone like Tiger, then it's not just Tiger who's been out with injuries. Like, like Daniel Berger had his wrist last year. Like if you start down that rabbit hole, then all of a sudden you've manually adjusted everybody and you're just moving more further away from their, the model, which is supposed to keep you like in check. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's tough to get it right, obviously. Do you guys use your own model? Do you guys bet on golf? Yeah, we do bet, but like not a lot. 
of money just because we're both actually quite risk averse by nature. Um, yeah, we do bet just to track and as like validation for what, how our model's performing. Yeah, there is a betting page on our website or betting results page on our site that you can look at. We, we keep it pretty, we never like tweet it out or anything because the highs are high and the lows are low. Like gambling's a tough life. <laughs> yeah. So especially when you care a lot about the results. Um, but yeah, yeah, we, we've been betting since probably 2018. We do a lot of uh, like bets on top 20s and round matchups. We generally don't bet on someone to win. If we bet on like Brendan Todd to win, then our results would just explode up and they'd be a lot less meaningful because now we're just, we're obviously going to be in the, we're going to be profiting this year. If, if we get like, if we hit a long out or a long shot like that. Last year we made like 3000 bets this year. We're going to make about that many. Just cause if you're not like, if you're just betting outrights like to win bets, uh, it'll honestly take like five years for you to realize whether or not you have an edge just based off of the results. There are other ways you could figure out whether you're doing something smart. Yeah. So how about when an average better walks into a sports book stay or, or logs on to DraftKings Sportsbook, where would you advise that they go to start with and where should they stay away from? Uh, I would say, I mean, I would stay away from outrights, I think. Well, in general, I think the first, I would stay away from the place they're probably going to go, which is to place a bet on a favorite to win the tournament. Tell me about that. Tell me why that's bad. Yeah, well, they're, they're, those are almost certainly overvalued. In, in general, what you want to look at if you're betting is, uh, so obviously the bookmaker builds in a margin or the, the big into their bets. And so like you can take all the odds in a market and add them up and see how much you're getting screwed over essentially. And so in an outright market, they're going to add up to, they should add up, add up to 100%. They're going to add up to like 140%. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a, and that's mostly just because generally the more participants there are in the market, the more juice that can be added. And that's why outright markets have that much. Whereas if you go and bet on, so top 20s will be similar, but if you go and bet on matchups, they'll add up to like on DraftKings, maybe 107%. So you're not, not too bad, but yeah, I would recommend people. I like, I think top 20s are good. And I think, uh, I think round matchups are good if you want something to track each day. Cause it depends. Most people I think are just betting for entertainment. And so often your top 20 bets will have, bombed out after Thursday or Friday. And so matchups are good, just good daily entertainment. And they're pretty, like I said, there's low, pretty low margin. Um, yeah. In general, if, when we're betting, we're always betting on lower tier players in the top 20 markets. Like we've, we've probably bet and lost on Bronson Burgoon in the last 15 weeks. So we're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're betting on guys like that. Bronson Burgoon out of Texas A&M. And he's chipping it in. We've seen a couple chip ins today already. Nice little two there. Yeah, you just keep going to the well. Yeah, we yeah. do. The, the, yeah. It's ter- and same with Steve Stricker, although he actually did top twenty the last time he was out. Yeah, the worst thing about Bragoon is he keeps not top twentying, but he's playing well enough that our model still really likes him. He's just in this terrible sweet spot where we keep on going back to the well on Bragoon. Yeah, but yeah, as soon as he like has a good finish, then the market will pick up on that, and we probably won't like him for another year until he slips back into the sweet spot. Right. So yeah, so there is some sort of sweet spot that you guys like that's probably just off the radar, just off the, you know, front pages of golf.com, etc. that keep guys undervalued. Yeah, like they're not really having high finishes, so they're not getting a lot of like official world golf ranking points. They're, like they're staying out of the news, like you said, but they're kind of just quietly rocking up like some nice top 30s, uh, like T25, stuff like that. 
basically wherever Stricker is on the leaderboard, that's the sweet spot. <laughs> he's not he's not making us any money, but he's playing okay. He's keeping you interested for four days. Yeah, and when you talk about the uh, the course fit, how much does that really vary week to week in terms of guys on tour that it favors? Is there a dramatic difference from a course you were talking about, like um, Beth Page Black, to a course like Harbor Town, or or I'm not sure what another good example would be, Colonial maybe, a course that doesn't reward distance? Yeah, they can be pretty big. So I would say just to, as a benchmark, like a top five player in the world, we would have as like, generally is like two strokes per round better than the average PJ tour player. That's sort of a benchmark. And I would say the course fit adjustments would, yeah, like they would range from, so yeah, a guy who bombs it might be getting a plus 0.3 or 0.4 adjustment. That'd be a big adjustment at like Cameron Champ, let's say at best age. And then if he went and played uh, the most extreme course is actually in the other direction is uh, El Chameleon or whatever, the one in where the Michael, the classic is played. Mm -hmm. It's super, uh, it favors driving accuracy. I haven't, into the course but there's bush everywhere i think yeah there sure is right which honestly generally would not i would think would not affect tour pros because they generally do hit it but i guess it's tight enough that it's it does and so champ would get like a negative 0.4 bump there let's say so that ends that ends up if you add those up that's almost uh it's getting near a stroke which is a pretty massive difference um but in general, there's there's small adjustments, but you do get big ones. When is it that guys separate on leaderboards? When you see major championships seem to separate the best players a little bit more, Brooks Kepka always talks about that. Is that a real thing versus the clumping that seems to happen more often in tour events, or is that just kind of a misconception? No, I think that's true. I think uh, I think Memorial actually saw it. It was a very spread out leaderboard, and I think, I mean, Murfield Village historically is a very high variance course. Um, but I think it happens when, yeah, I think it just happens like when you expect it to, like when there's wind, when there's dry conditions. Uh, I This is something I do want to look into. Like, I don't know if it's completely true that when it's softer conditions in a putting contest that it does lower the variance because on, on mm -hmm. in some sense, like putting is the highest, we haven't talked about this at all, but putting is the highest variance uh, thing in golf. Major championships tend to get played on courses that are uh, in difficult conditions. So I think, I do think that checks out and it, it definitely is true. Like, actually, I think looking back, Shinnecock was the highest variance. I was looking at this stuff the other day. It was the highest variance course they played in the last, whatever, 15 years. And that was, those were, I mean, I think a couple people, Zach Johnson, that was the day Zach Johnson said they'd lost the course or whatever. Uh, Shinnecock Hills is beautiful, uh, but unfortunate, unfortunately, uh, they've lost the golf course. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I love watching. I mean, that golf's great to watch. Uh, whether or not it, the other thing going on here is like whether or not it, it rewards skill. Because just because you have variance, just because you have separation, that doesn't necessarily mean that like people often, that is a misconception, I think, that some smart people make uh, in the architecture world where they, just because a leaderboard is spreading players out, it's not necessarily a good thing. It could be, uh, I don't know. It could just be it just could be random variance, in which case there's no correlation between skill and uh, where you're ending up on the leaderboard. Interesting. Yeah. All right. I've already kept you guys longer than I said you would. So just a couple more things. One, you just touched on something that's really interesting, which is the biggest, the most volatile stats week to week. Um, what is the most random thing week to week, and what is the most consistent thing? Yeah, putting is obviously really volatile week to week. And then long game is something that will persist longer, which is, and you do notice it a lot in like the gambling community now. Everyone's 
think saying like, oh, like this guy, uh, he finished uh, 40th last week, but he putted really poorly. And they just kind of like, I'm like, his putting will come back, surely. It was just an off week for his putting. Whereas if he hits it really poorly, then there's more reason for concern, which they're right about. But I think it's actually gotten to the point where they're probably, they trust long game a bit too much. Before, they probably yeah. didn't factor that in too much. And now it's probably being a bit too weighted. I agree. Yeah, I think that's true. I do think the betting types, the serious fans have actually, or serious, serious gamblers have actually overcorrected a bit. The one other interesting stat I think is strokes gain around the green is interesting because it correlates with, uh, just in terms of prediction, which is not necessarily what you're asking. Variability is a bit different. But around the green skill actually correlates with putting skill, like going forward. And it also correlates with approach skill. Approach skill makes sense, I think, because wedge, wedges are obviously similar to iron shots. The putting stuff is is interesting. Like what I'm saying is like two players who have the same, uh, whatever, suppose they've had, they putted identically in the last 30 rounds, but one guy has chipped better. He's, his around the green play has been better. We would actually predict him to be a better putter going forward which is kind of is very interesting it could just be mm -hmm. a weird like selection thing where uh if you're not a bomber you have to be good at putting and shorting but i think it also could be something to do with reading greens maybe or just yeah i don't know it's hard to say but around the green is something that's like deceptively predictive which is that's interesting i've never i'd never quite heard that so it's some combination of something with touch or feel or some way that you're interpreting the greens correctly yeah possibly um all right let's get to the pga championship because we are now in a major week here um i don't know how much you guys have looked at tpc harding park who it might fit um or or where it could fall in terms of course fit have you guys um thought much about it and do you have any other courses that it might be similar to or any guys it might favor yeah just looking at our course fit so they did host that tournament in 2005 right matt it was a wgc event just on our course fit tool so it looks like distance will be helpful here people who generally hit it far will perform better than at a neutral course and driving accuracy is a little less important than that average course in terms of similar courses we have tory pines south up mm -hmm. there um What's another one? Augusta's up there in terms of similar courses. So yeah, like favoring long hitters and accuracy is not as important, which is kind of normal for a major championship, I think. Yeah, I would say it's going to get, we're probably going to, this actually isn't even in our model yet, really. Uh, it's, we're probably going to downgrade this stuff just because it is, uh, if, I think that was a 2005 WGC event. So it's, it's pretty yeah. old data. So I, I think it actually was, I think it was John, it was, Daly and Tiger in a playoff. Oh, oh no! There it is. Oh! And Tiger Woods wins this American Express Championship. Yeah. Maybe Daly's, Daly could be driving the correlation there. But uh, we'll probably downgrade it a bit just because it's one, just looking at the plot, it is kind of a big, uh, relative to other courses, it is a pretty big adjustment. So we might tweak that a bit for next week. But. Yeah, and is that something where you look at, oh, well, now compared to then, this is the PGA Championship, and it's 2020, so the course is longer, the fairways are probably tighter, the rough is probably longer. Does that affect how you would look at this? It, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't actually affect things just because we don't have, like, like just with all the stuff <clears throat> on our website that goes on in a week, we don't really have, we just try and make everything as automated as possible because we don't really have time to share sure. things. But I know, yeah, I think people who bet super seriously uh, and even people who use our stuff and just try to improve upon it. Um, yeah, I do think 
looking at that stuff is helpful and maybe looking at similar major setups and seeing who's who's played who's played well there i think at the end of the day you're not like gonna shift uh your opinion on golfers like too much based off that stuff but i think it can it can help for sure um but we yeah we won't look at it just because we kind of just like to have a whole pipeline that we can feed data into and adjust off that and we can't do it for that stuff yeah that makes sense um all right so in addition to bronson bragoon Give me a couple guys that, that data golf is high on that the rest of the world might not really be aware of, um, either in general or then for the PGA Championship. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll start with the PGA. So one guy that we're actually seeing value on and to win the tournament is Billy Horschel. It's got to go a little bit. Yes, it does. About, I'm going to say eight inches. Yeah. Hmm. Which is kind of interesting because he's not that under the radar usually, but um, yeah, he's like he's a massive value for us. Uh, I mean, if you look at his results, he's got nothing that flashy, but lots of really solid finishes. He never really seems to play that poorly. He's only performed worse than the average PGA Tour player once in an event in the last like five or or ten or so starts. So yeah, he's clearly playing really well or solid. And he's he's good enough that he has an actually decent chance of winning. So yeah, we actually did go and place a bet on him for like I think that's our first pre-tournament outright bet we've placed since we started betting. Nice the whole time. Yeah, we usually don't do it, but we couldn't resist. And I'm seeing Billy Ho at about one fifty to one, so that's a pretty serious value bet. Yeah, yeah, we actually placed it, and then the odds changed. It's a good sign, actually. The odds, well, I mean, they were one fifty. We placed the bet at one fifty to one. And then they moved uh, to 100 to one in a few places. Not saying we, we didn't shift the line. I'm not necessarily saying that. The Sharps, that's how you know. Shifting lines from Canada. Yeah. Yeah, that is the one way, obviously, to know other than results, whether you're doing something correct. Um, as, yeah, as for guys who I think we value probably more than the market might, I'm kind of just looking at guys who are ranked really high or really poorly in the OWGR relative to our stuff. And these, these are guys like Harris English, who I think people are actually on. He's been playing really well lately. Uh, Will Zalatoris, I think people are also – he's not he's not in the PGA, obviously, but he's been mm-hmm. – he's, what he's doing right now is insane. Like, he's going to end up, uh, to my point earlier, just about nobody playing better than PJ Tour average player on development tours. Uh, he's definitely going to do that this year. We have him right now as a .8 shots better than an average PJ Tour player. He's 38th in our rankings, and he's 159th in the world golf ranking. So – I mean, that's, a lot of that's just because he can't get points on the contrary tour, like he can on the PGA, obviously. Um, yeah, so he's someone we obviously really like. Sure. And he'll, I mean, he'll be in the U.S. Open, I guess, right? So there'll be a chance to get some major championship big game action on him. Yeah, Ryan Moore is another guy. He's 44th in our rankings and 113th in the world golf ranking. And wow. again, I think similar story to Billy Horschel, I think. like He's playing pretty well, but nothing nothing flashy i love it all right i'm gonna go invest on ryan moore billy horschel and just wait for wait to drop that bronson bragoon bullet um well thank you guys so much for the time i appreciate it that's gonna do it for this week's episode of the drop zone thanks so much to matt and will for joining me and thank you guys for listening and thanks to lee finer also who expertly produced this week's episode as always If you've made it this far, you should know that Ryan Moore, right after we recorded, 
withdrew from the PGA Championship, so we'll be investing our funds elsewhere. Uh, but hopefully, it's a great PGA week for everyone. We will be back here next week with our own Alan Shipnuck, who's been reporting live and will continue to be all week from TPC Harding Park. See you then.